0: Welcome to the first episode of Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I, Cindy, a McGill Classic student, chat with some of my friends about their research and their interests concerning the ancient Mediterranean world. The goal of this series is to figure out what exactly is classics. It's such a broad, seemingly all-encompassing term that covers everything from ancient languages to ancient cultures to ancient religion and societies. So I thought I would share the experience with all of you and figure out what exactly is classics, who are the people studying it, and what it is that attracts them to the ancient world. Today, I kick things off by talking with one of my friends, Christiane-Marie Cantwell. She just graduated in 2021 from the McGill Classics program. Her interests and research mainly lie in archeology, span and our discussion today revolves around a paper she wrote that combines agency theory and gender theory with archeology. span We'll talk about Roman Gaul, the role that women played in changing how religion was practiced in different parts of Gaul, and a strange mystery cult that encourages bull castration. So without further ado, please let me introduce the funny, the eloquent, Christiane Marie. So I thought we would get things rolling by just talking a little bit about you, who you are, what are some of your hobbies, fun facts, all of that good stuff.
1: Sure. My name is Christiane Marie. I am a recent graduate of McGill Classics, doing a double major in Classics Linguistics class of 2021. And yeah, I'm from Montreal, Canada. I play piano. I was really involved in the piano community at McGill. And I really love my time at the department for the four years. (laughs) So actually, one interesting thing about you is
0: that Classics was not your original goal. Could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Classics?
1: I ended up in Classics by a really weird twist of faith. I had applied to all my university programs to be in economics and philosophy. I really wanted to do a politics, philosophy, and economics. Like, that was my goal. And basically, all the schools I applied to, you apply directly to a program, except for McGill. McGill just lets you into their faculty of art. So I arrived at U0, and I was like, I'm just going to do economics, I'm going to get like a minor in linguistics, because that's computational, I like working with language, that's what I'm going to do. And I ended up taking these economics classes my first year, and it was so boring. And I had to take math, because I want to do honors, econ, and the math is the worst class I've ever done at McGill, like my worst grade I've ever gotten at McGill was in that math class my first semester, I just really didn't like my experience. The only class I did like my first semester was Intro to Classical Archaeology. I took it as an elective, kind of like on a whim, and I ended up falling in love with it. I was like, this is so cool. This is what I want to do. I've always liked history, but ancient history never felt really relatable to me. I like used to say, like no, I don't want to go to the ancient ruins. That's not relatable to me. Like, I don't like it. I didn't think there was a career in any type of history at all. So that's why I totally shunned it. But with that classical archaeology class, it really brought me back in. And I was like, oh, wow, Like this is what I want to do. It feels like a puzzle. It feels like I'm uncovering the past. I love this. My mother, on the other hand, was like, well, before you switch programs, like wait another semester. So I did a whole other semester of linguistics and economics classes. Hated that even more than my first semester. And then I had applied my second semester to go to Solapia, which is Professor Totten's field school. And I said, if this goes well, if I really love this, I'm going to declare a Classics major when I come back. Lo and behold, I went. I loved it. Declared a Classics major, started my Latin and my Roman literature and Greek literature in the fall. And that's how I became a Classics major. It was really an accident. Like I had never thought that this was something I could do. It's really something that I discovered at university. And without taking that one class, I don't think I would have been here right now. So you
0: actually got on the classics train a little bit later, so to speak. You started a year later than hardcore classicists who knew from day one that that was what they wanted to pursue. Could you speak to some of the challenges that you had to face as a result of starting a year later, for example, starting your languages a year later or any other challenge to that degree?
1: I mean, you definitely speak to that. You know, the languages are made technically, so yeah, you can do them in a three-year program. But as people who are in the program know, most people start them in their first year, so you can have two years or at least one year advanced of each ancient Greek and Latin. If you start in your third year, you're kind of screwed. The program advisors tell you don't take ancient Greek and intro to Latin at the same time. It's too difficult. So I didn't. I took Latin. Love Latin. Did super well at it. I had a really great professor. I had Professor Sarroi and it was amazing. And then I was going to Salapia the summer after my second year. So I couldn't take intro to ancient Greek. So I had to take that my third year. So I didn't start ancient Greek until my third year when some people had been taking it since their first and were already like in advanced. So that definitely was a disadvantage in terms of my language skills. I think my language skills are really good. But if you're not good at languages, like one of the things is like I am pretty good at languages and figuring out the puzzles of language, which is a lot of the ancient languages and how they're taught, you can struggle and it's going to be hard to get all your credits in the time you can. Like it was really hard for me to figure out a way to do honors. And in the end, I couldn't do it. Because I chose to do three years, like if you want to pursue a path in classics, it's almost something that you need to know before you start. And I didn't know before I started. I'm not saying this is negative. Like, I still really enjoy my classes and the profs I've had, but it is harder. Like, some people in my year did Latin in high school. Never an option for me. Like, that was never a possibility that you could do Latin in high school. And so, you come into a school where people have already a basis, already know all these authors, like Ovid and Virgil. I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. Like, I, I know the name, but I can't read that. And that was a bit of the, the difficulty. And also, I'm like more material culture than like philology. So it was a bit of a push, but that was my struggle starting at Like,
0: I hear you. The languages are definitely a huge component of your degree here at McGill but you're a great example of somebody who started in their second year and was able to still achieve proficiency in both languages. I think this is a good point for us to now turn to the material culture aspect of classical studies, since this is the area of your research. Could you tell us about your experience at the dig site in Salapia?
1: Yeah, I went twice. I went my first time, I was a just a student excavator, and that was really good. Like, I really enjoyed it. It's not for everyone. You'd really discover, like, the idea of archaeology is really romanticized and it's so much fun. Like you're discovering things all the time. And I mean, the truth of it is not that you'll be digging for a day and like not get anywhere. And you have to be OK with that. You have to be OK with never finding something huge because you're not you're like you're, you're, you're going to find a stone, like a pottery shard. But finding like a statue, I know we don't we don't do that. So a lot most archaeology doesn't do that. And so I think for some people, it was a wake-up call to what archaeology is. And archaeology is hard work. You wake up at 5 in the morning to be on the dig site at 6 a.m. You dig until 9, you take a 15-minute break. Then you dig until 12, you take a 30-minute break, and then you dig until 2 in the hot Italian sun. And like I said, there's not always a big reward. There's not always like, you're going to work and then you're going to find a great discovery. Like, no, you're going to work and then you're going to find a beaten earth floor and then you're going to clean that floor. You're going to clean the dust off the mud. Then you're going to take a picture of it and then you're going to destroy it and you're going to repeat that over and over and over again. And so if you are expecting it to be easy work, to be glorious work, it's not that. However, I thought it was so much fun. (laughs) The way the Silapia project has two phases of it, well, three actually, it has a medieval site, it has a an late antique site, and also has a field survey project. And I started off on my field survey, we were just walked in fields and looked at the ground and picked up stuff. And then if it was like a high concentration of stuff, we took waypoints. At the end of the day, you put it all in your GIS, your geographic services, your map, you plot it out and like, that's that's it. And I started off with that. And that was a great intro to it because it's really low work. You just look at the ground, pick up stuff. You get told that you're picking up a lot of rocks because I don't know if you know, Cindy, but prehistoric pottery really looks like a rock. <laughs> um, and so you get told you're picking up lots of rocks and that's what you do. But you get to talk to people, which is one of the greatest things from Salapia for me was my friends I've made there. I made a lot of my really close friends at McGill in Classics from my Silapia experience. So you get to talk to people and field survey is amazing. And again, not for everyone. Some people hated it. Like, so walking in fields, I know it's not the funnest experience for everyone, but I enjoyed it. And then my first summer, I was in the medieval site. And my second summer, I was six weeks, the whole time in the late antique site with Dr. Totem. And, you know, you just you just dig. You just do your thing and you gotta be positive. And that's it because, you know, you'll find some stuff. We found some amazing things that are cool to me. But if I tell anyone, I'm like, oh my God, we found like a hearth. And people are like, okay, was it a special hearth? Was it like diamond hearth? And I was like, no, it's just a hearth. (laughs) And you just have to be, you have to be excited about that type of stuff.
0: And I actually have the flip side of that perspective because I'm absolutely not an archaeologist. And when I'm reading through these archaeological papers with all these numbers and these pottery shards, I'm just like,
1: okay, cool.
0: Like, (laughs) that's a cool (laughs) amphora.
1: I mean, one of the really cool things that I got to do my second summer is I was both an excavator and I was an intern, the field lab intern. So every day, like I said, like Salapia is not a beach vacation. It's really not. <laughs> you work and then you get home, you get back at the place where we stay at two, then you have lunch and then you can either take a shower, but we have lab and lab is washing and sorting all the pottery and all the fines that we've pulled out of the ground that day. And so, what you do is you really you sit in front of a bucket of water with a toothbrush and a piece of pottery, and you're rubbing the dirt off of the pottery. Very glorious work.
0: Do you get to do any reconstruction work, like piecing the puzzle pieces back together and forming an artifact?
1: Not at the site itself, so not at the field school, but I know we partner at Salapia with the University of Foggia, which is like a university in a town that's close to where we work. It's in, the, it's in Puglia, it's in the region. And um, Roberto is Goffredo. he's the professor from Foggia who has the medieval site. So Dr. Totten and Dr. Goffredo they work together on this project and they've been working together for a long time. And he brings the stuff back, the finds back to his lab, stores them, and they do reconstruction work there.
0: Gotcha. I can definitely see myself getting into that part of the lab process.
1: Yeah, it's very apparently... I, I found this great piece once. I was walking in the field and it was like a new olive field. So they had just tilled. So a bunch of stuff had come out and it was a red slip glazeware. And we found the two pieces of it. And inside the glaze, you could see where they had repaired it because it had already been broken. So the piece had already been broken and the ancients had repaired it with a metal clasp that was gone, but you could see exactly where the metal clasp would go because there was a cutout inside of the plate because it had been broken once, repaired, and then broken again, and then that's when it got tossed. But I thought that was so cool, this type of like reconstruction work. You can retell the life of the plate itself through your own reconstruction of it.
0: Gosh, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> So what kind of archaeology draws you in? What makes it different from all the other streams in classics? So at McGill, there's quite a heavy emphasis on interacting with primary sources and reading texts in their original language. What makes archaeology so different?
1: For me, the archaeology, which is what brought me to classics in the first place, is the materiality of it. The things. (laughs) You can touch things that people a thousand years ago touched you you know they were there you can see what they did you could reconstruct their lives and that's the most fascinating part to me you know that people touched it and you know that it's not just the elites that touched it you know that people of all classes could have touched this it could have been their space they experienced it which is what draws me to it the most i'm not saying that like you can't do that with history and literature but i'm really a proponent of classics and this type of archaeology, like classical archaeology being a multifaceted work. I don't think you can erase or take away classical archaeology from the study of the literature, from the study of like their history. I think it's all intertwined and you need to do this integrated classics. And that goes the same. Like, I don't think you can do literature studies and make an argument for how, you know, Ovid places himself in relation to Augustus without taking into account the history. And to that point, without taking into account the material culture that's left from Rome, we have political signs and political graffitis from Rome itself. What does that tell us if you're trying to say, well, this was a political time in this poem, it reflects that. Well, what do we know past of the historians? Is that true? Can we retrace that? The archaeology allows us a way to confirm the historians and create and bolster our history. We shouldn't use the archaeology to prove the history, but you can do independent work and pull strands from each work to create a better product, in my opinion. I think that's so
0: true. And especially when we're working primarily with written texts, it's easy to forget that there were actually people behind this literature, behind this writing. I remember distinctly in second year, I had a, well, actually, we were in the same class. A professor told us that if you look up at the moon, just think Socrates looked at the same moon. And that really struck me, that you can still have physical objects around that ancient people interacted with, that they they saw and they perceived. The idea that you can still find pottery shards that people touched and used, that's really powerful.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, it's like the idea of touching something that they touched and... It really excites me just knowing that there are other people and there weren't stories. Because I feel because it's such a removed past in our collective psyche that we feel like it's so removed and they weren't people. And, you know, classics has fallen prey to people re-taking it for their own goals and ends and shaping it and doing what they want with it on purpose so that only white people and white men usually can feel reflected in the ancient past. It's been a purpose to alienate Others from just learning a history they're interested in, right? I don't believe that classics is the universal history. I just think it's a neat history of a time period like any other, and we shouldn't put it on a pedestal, but no one should feel alienated either from studying it.
0: And this is actually a great point for us to now turn to talk about your research paper because it focuses on an area that is traditionally not given the most scholarly attention in classics, and this is Roman Gaul. Could you take us through the main points of your paper and the main arguments, as well as how you ended up with Gaul as your research
1: topic? Mm, for sure. My paper, as you said, is about Roman Gaul and specifically about the Roman social and religious effect upon the native population, the indigenous populations in Gaul. So a bit of background to what that means. Gaul, for those who don't know, and that's totally fair if you don't know, it's like a antiquated term. <laughs> is France. Basically, it's the area of France, a bit into Spain, not quite so, a bit of Switzerland, uh, Belgium, and up into the Netherlands. And so that's what they called Gaul, And it was a Roman province, first conquered by Caesar in the 50s BC, and then continually conquered into the 120s until it just became a Roman province, like any any other between quotation marks. I'm interested in Gaul because not a lot of stuff is said on it. And honestly, <laughs> I, there's two threads of how I got interested in Gaul. Number one is that I was looking for something to study. And you're always told, well, what's the past scholarship? And what are you doing new? I was like, well, I can't say anything new about Pompeii, can I? Like, I, yes, you can. But as an undergraduate, I felt like I couldn't. So I'm like, well, what do I like? What has not been studied much? And what do I like? And I fell upon this paper by Elena Widgodner, who is a PhD student or early faculty at University of Arizona State out in Tempe, Arizona. And she wrote a paper on the votives, the votive tradition in Gaul, and body part votives. Body part votives are little statues of human body parts that are dedicated to a god as a wish. And her paper to all talks about how men and women dedicate different types of wishes. Different types of votives to gods, and that women dedicate more in a Roman style, and men dedicate in a Gallic style, and that really interested me. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something here. So that's one of my streams. My second one is that as a kid, I loved the comic books Asterix et Obelix. It's the story of this like they call it a little Gallic village in the middle of the woods that are staying strong against the Roman conquest. Julius Caesar is like a main character and they go all over like they meet Cleopatra, they made a movie about it, like it's a really big cultural francophone phenomenon. And I was kind of like, well, why don't I do Gaul? Like I've read so much about it, like, you know, it's been part of the culture that I've consumed. I'm interested in it. Like this type of myth-making around Gaul. And I was like, okay, well, let's let's work on this. And of course, it helps that I speak French and I can read most of the work because most of the work that's done on it has been done in french and so it's inaccessible to anglophone speakers but i do speak french and i said well if i want to write in english let's do gold let's make it more accessible let's let's work on this let's you know let's do some stuff and the french tradition how the french work in their academic work is not at all how the anglophones work they like philology a lot more their archaeology is good but much more prehistoric And the theories they apply are not really the theories that we work with in terms of what I want to work with. That said, this is how I got interested in Gaul. And my paper is on Gaul and women's role in changing the indigenous religion in Gaul after Roman conquest. I use two theories, agency theory and gender theory. Agency theory is the idea that everyone always has a choice. I could choose right now, to stop talking and not talk to Cindy for an hour. I'm not gonna do that, (laughs) but that's a choice. And everyone always has a choice, but our choices are conditioned based on our environments and the power we have within them. And so I could just stop talking to Cindy, but based on the environment and the social structures surrounding us, I'm not going to, because the social cues say, no, we're gonna keep up this conversation. And so that influences my decision. In the end, the decision is mine to make, but it is influenced by other things. And I really love applying this type of theory to the ancient world because it gives agency to all individuals in the ancient world, to women, to children, to enslaved individuals. And so for a woman who were relatively powerless in the Roman world, in the Roman provinces, you could say, yeah, they had a choice. Their choices were constrained by the gender norms, were constrained about what they could do in life but they had a choice. And to me, that's so much more powerful than just saying, yeah, women did whatever men want them to. Well, no, women did what they could, given the situation. Same thing with enslaved individuals. Enslaved individuals had agency, but they were constrained by the power structures they were living in, which put their choices into very, very small boxes, which is, you know, that's the dangerous part with this theory. You're saying, yeah, everyone has a choice. And then people could extrapolate and say, well, enslaved individuals... They could just get free. They had choice. No, that's not the theory. The theory says that you are constrained by the relationships you have to your environment and to power structures and other people. But at least it gives people agency and makes them people, which is what is most important to me in my work. And then I apply gender theory to it because I believe that gender is created. And so I was interested in how women's choices created gender norms enforced gender norms and how did they change after roman conquest so i really wanted to apply this to women and my thesis was that women are actively changing religion in gaul after roman conquest they are actively participating in what is called the religious romanization So the indigenous culture is changing to include Roman elements into its practices, into its gods. And up to this point, you know, it's mostly thought to be elites who are doing this, and men. What I found is that yes, elites for sure are doing this, but women as well, And that it changes based on where you are in Gaul. In the South, it's much more, quote unquote, Romanized, the relationships might have been different to Rome in the South because they were so much closer to the Mediterranean than they were in the North, where the relationships were more military-based. And so this might have effect of how religious Romanization occurred and women's roles in it. So this is really interesting because you're
0: looking at choices that are able to be physically reflected in objects that are then preserved and you're able to trace back their deliberate intentions in choosing that object, in using that object, and perhaps in displacing the object, right, from where it was manufactured to where it was eventually used and perhaps buried. So I'm wondering, how does that choice manifest itself in the material culture that you're working with? How can you tell that this was a deliberate choice, that there was meaning behind the objects used?
1: Yeah, you have to be careful when you're applying this type of agency theory to materials because not all choices were deliberate. Like when you get up in the morning, you know, brush your teeth, that's not necessarily a deliberate choice. And a lot of these women, it's the same thing. Like they didn't think like, yes, in like 800 years, someone's going to look at this and know that I wanted to do this. No, I mean, they had a certain amount of range of choices and they made a choice within that range. But what's cool is to see how women created norms together together to what was okay to dedicate and what wasn't. And those are two types of religious materials. There are body part votives, so little statues of body parts that dedicate as wishes. And there are altars, which are wishes, but bigger. They usually dedicate a sacrifice. They're more expensive. They're really elite materials. And on those altars, people usually wrote their names and the god they were dedicating to, because it was a contract to a god. The god needed to know who was making the wish. And when a woman writes her name, most often, if she has an indigenous name, she will dedicate to an indigenous deity. When I say indigenous, I mean the conglomeration of Gallic deities because there were a lot and we don't know all of them. And then if she had a Roman name, she most often dedicated to a Roman god. And if they had a mixed name, so elements of both Gallic uh, naming system and Roman naming systems, they did not dedicate most often to ties, which are mixed deities, They dedicated most often, actually pretty equally, to Roman and indigenous Gallic deities. So that was pretty interesting.
0: So you mentioned that the altars are actually more expensive than the body part votives. Would it be correct to say that you're actually studying women from different social classes? Another reason I'm asking this is because it sounds like the women who are inscribing their names on altars are actually literate. So, of course, this is not a skill that you just pick up on the daily, but is probably more of an elite activity and an elite skill. So, can you actually figure out from the dedicated religious objects what class or from what social level the women who dedicated them came from?
1: Yeah, that is that is one of the weaknesses of my my paper is that it does focus a lot on elite individuals. We can understand that the votive tradition may have been accessible to more than just the elites. A lot of these votives may have been um, mass fabricated. Also, that can tell us a lot more about, you know, what was what was the demand and why was it Roman? So, you know, there's a lot of questions that can come from that. But the altars are elite. The women wouldn't have been the ones inscribing them. They'll have an artisan writing them out. But you can't necessarily retrieve the class from these materials. And if you can, it's elite. There's some things that will have to remain secret. You can't, that's just the way with archaeology. There's some things that you'll never know. There may have been even more votives that were just wood. And that's, wood votives would have been the lower class materials than the ceramic ones. And then that material's just gone. Now you start and
0: end your paper talking about one specific object, a ring. What is it about this ring that makes it so special and so fascinating
1: for you? This ring is really interesting because it's a gold ring that's inscribed inside it that was dedicated to Sirona, who is the uh, goddess of the Seine River, in a well, like in a spring. So it was a wish dedicated to a goddess, uh, maybe for healing, maybe for good luck. We don't know. It was just a wish. And it tells the woman's name, Clementia Montiola. That was her name. And she wrote it inside the ring. And she dedicated the ring to the water deity for a wish. And it's really interesting because it's the only gold ring that's been found in all of Gaul, so in the four provinces of Gaul. And it really changes from the norm of dedication in these spaces. Where this ring was found, a bunch of body part votives were found. I was really interested by why did Clementia Montiola choose to dedicate a ring and not a body part votive? And questioning ourselves about this ring is a good starting point to question ourselves about the entire... Assemblage of women's religious materials. Like, why did they choose body part votives and altars? Couldn't they have not adapted to other Roman practices? Because the golden ring was a Roman practice as well. And to me, this ring symbolizes that, yeah, it was just choices. This woman chose to dedicate a ring. She didn't want a body part votive. She thought for some reason that it wasn't gonna work for what wish she wanted. She chose to dedicate a ring. And it's her choice that left us this material. Other people, other women, chose to dedicate body part votives. But what if all of a sudden everyone had said, oh, look, she's dedicated a ring. Maybe her wish will work better. And everyone started doing it. And then we'd have thousands of rings. It's one choice can affect the change. But only if others buy into it and make choices similar to them. That's how traditions are perpetrated, if you think about it. Every year we choose to celebrate Christmas. One year, everyone could stop and there would be no more Christmas, but we all choose to keep doing it. And so these are the types of traditions. And so in Roman Gaul, what we see is that women as a group chose to change how they dedicated. And that's leaving us with different materials. But the ring shows us that could have been a different choice. Just drawing in a contemporary example here,
0: I can't help but be reminded of a social media phenomenon where you see on TikTok and on Instagram, these trends going around so you get the same background music and people do the same dance moves or the same actions to it i mean each trend starts from somewhere someone was the first creator and if it catches on that just means more and more people are jumping on board and then you sort of have a phenomenon that's bigger than the individual who started it but that doesn't negate the fact that the original action was somebody's choice
1: exactly exactly
0: Now, just to wrap up our conversation here on your research paper and on Gaul, this is a bit of a bigger question, but I am interested in hearing your thoughts. How does your paper and your research in general contribute to discussions about Romanization and about cultural change in Gaul?
1: I mean, I don't want to say it's, it doesn't revolutionize the field. What I do like about it is that it's bringing back personal decisions and personal experiences of Roman conquest and Roman rule into the conversation. Romanization is a really loaded term. It's been there, done that, people have been fighting about what it means and how it's done for decades. And so I use it with a grain of salt. What to me, Romanization is, is cultural change. And how do cultures change? People change their culture culture doesn't exist as a third party. People shape it, people mold it, people use it. And so for me, by using agency theory, we're bringing it back to the personal. We're bringing it back, well, what are the agents and who changed it? And and it's also this idea of not giving the Romans too much power. Did the Romans change the cultures when they conquered? Yeah. Did they do it on purpose? We're not too sure, but they definitely did something to change the culture. But then The indigenous also were in charge and then in the 90s there was this whole conversation that susan alcock really loved his local elite or in local resistance models so you know we talk about greece when it was taken by roman the romans didn't change that much wasn't romanized and everyone was like it's because the romans they just had so much respect for greek culture and then like Susan Alcock was like, actually, maybe we can give the Greeks more agency in keeping their culture alive. Some people have bought that again too far and saying the Romans didn't do whack. They didn't do anything. It wasn't their fault that the culture changed. It was all the indigenous changing their old culture to fit in. And that doesn't bring that true to me. Like really, like their culture, they've been practicing for hundreds of years, their religions, are they really going to give it up for the drop of a hat? What happened? And I think it's a conversation. And I also think there's a conversation to be had about what the Gauls had on the Romans, the impact on Roman culture. And that's starting to be researched a lot. Like, so there's some really great scholars on it, but I'm really interested in that. How did the provinces impact the Romans who were there? It's not a one-way street. And that's what I also hope to do further in the future. Yeah, so now is actually a good time for us to jump
0: over and talk about your future plans, because next year you're starting a very exciting master's degree at Cambridge University. So first off, congratulations. Thank you so much. So do you know if you're going to stick with Gaul or perhaps move on to a different subject? What are your thoughts?
1: I'm planning on going full throttle with Gaul. (laughs) Um, The research proposal I submitted, the one I got accepted with, is about the Torbolium in Gaul. And actually, the whole reason I was able to do this research proposal and propose this project is because of my independent study. When I was studying about, I was doing this project that I talked about, I had this huge spreadsheet and I had the name of the person who dedicated the altar, what goddess deity did they do it, what year, blah, blah, blah. And I started noticing a lot of like dedicated for the Torah like fekit torobolia. I was like, what is this? Like torabolia? I, like never heard of this before. So I google it Google gives Me, baptism by blood. And I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> and so I was like, what is this? Like, why are there so many in Gaul? Like women are, there's like 14 women who dedicated to, to the Torah Bolia in Gaul. And I started doing more work and I talked to Professor Heidi Wendt about it. And there's two traditions. Prudentius, who's a Christian writer in the fourth century AD, says it's a baptism of bull's blood. But it's actually a Mithraic, right? And it's cutting off the testicles. It might, so actually no one really knows what it is because it was a mystery cult. So no one actually really knows what happened. But cut off bull's testicles and dedicate those. So Bonadea, the goddess Bonadea, Magna Mater, as she's also called, has eunuch priests. And it is said in some circles, that the a bullium is the dedication of bull testicles to this goddess to represent a dedicants will to be praying to her without going the whole way because it was unroman to not have your testicles but the problem is why are women participating because if it's supposed to be like you're becoming a eunuch women couldn't become eunuchs so i did a little bit more digging turns out it is only in Gaul that women can practice the torbolium and no one knows why and the Torbulium also is practiced in Gaul to a degree unmatched except Roman self. Why in Gaul is this ritual so popular? And why can women participate? What happens to the ritual so that women can participate? And that's what I want to study. And I mean, for the other stuff I want to study, I would love to do something about like the reception of aesthetics and obédics. Like, I would love to do like an analysis of Caesar in aesthetics and obédics. Like, what what does that do? What? How is he depicted? How can that tell us about the francophone psyche and re- understanding of classical world? That's really interesting to me as well. Actually, I think
0: I've seen even a movie adaptation of *Asterix and Obelix* on Netflix.
1: Oh, there's a whole park, like a theme park. It's no, it's a, it's a huge thing.
0: Like for me, this just reminds me of Percy Jackson because that's the reason I know a lot of anglophone kids get into classics is reading the novels when they were younger and then realizing there's an entire field out there that studies the ancient world. So perhaps this is like a Francophone counterpart to that.
1: Kind of. I wonder. I would have to see what other people in Francophone areas, like what did they know about it? But it's just, it just, yeah, I really, I'm really interested by this kind of reception of it as well. Now,
0: moving on from bull castrations and the bizarre dedication ceremonies to the Magna Mater. Is there any advice that you could give to students who are interested in classical archaeology or any tips that you can share having completed the program yourself?
1: Yes, I would say one thing I regret not doing is an archaeology minor, an anthro minor. I would recommend maybe taking a minor so you can take archaeology of other spaces because knowing about how other spaces are excavated is really helpful. And I would say if you're interested in archaeology, get to know Dr. Tonnen. <laughs> she is an amazing prof. Take Intro to Classical Archaeology as soon as you can. And if you can, go on Salapia. find DIGS. You can go on the um, American Archaeology Association website. They have a map where usually a bunch of field schools put up ads and ask for people to join them. And my, my tip is go talk to a faculty member at uh, McGill before us... You can apply to them, but before saying, yes, I'll go to this one, because make sure they're safe. If you are a woman, if you are a queer person, if you are a person of color, not all spaces in archaeology will be safe for you. And also some dinks are just after your money and won't give you a refund and they're not going to teach you anything. And so it's really good to ask faculty to approve if these people are legit or not.
0: And on the topic of safe space and diversity... You were instrumental in the creation of the McGill Classics Open Letter. Could you talk to us about the inspiration behind it and what it is?
1: Sure. The Open Letter, I can just say what it is. First, is a a document that I wrote with Sarah Raja Hassan, Taryn Power, Emma Rougerie, and Neha Rahman, also who is CSA president of 2018, 2019, 2019, 2020, gave her input in it. It's a whole letter about what the Department of Classics at McGill can do better to create a safer environment and acknowledge the racist and colonial underpinnings and uses of classics. Classics is one of the oldest fields, and with that comes a lot of history and a lot of problematic history that we need to face. And not facing it, the effects it has had on our discipline and how we study is harmful to many individuals who study this. And so the letter is recommendations to the faculty signed by the entire Classic Student Association to say, this is what we'd like to do, and this is what we'd like to see you do. Included in it is more support for language learning, more diverse classes that don't focus just on Rome and Greece, more diverse faculty, more diverse outreach to high school students, to CGEP students, to students who don't know that this is a career path and don't see themselves represented. And it came out of the conversations last summer following George Floyd's death and all of the Black Lives Matter protests. And I remember talking to my friends in the department about experiences. And I was already thinking about it and what I wanted to do for it. And I knew that I couldn't write it alone, mostly because it's not my place to write it alone because some of the experiences that my friends had had, I've never had. It'd be disingenuous of me to write it alone. And that's how it started. I did the preamble, and then I asked friends to give feedback and write. And then it got presented to the student body, and then we got feedback about that, and we worked on it, and then we presented it again to the student body, and then to the faculty. And I can't say there's been immediate effects of it. The document was never meant to be a quick fix. It's meant to be something that students in 5-10 years can say, in 2020, we asked for this. Why don't we have it now?
0: This is definitely an area where... We can expect a lot of improvement and growth and the open letter is of course a beginning for all of that now for the last question of the interview what does classics mean to you
1: classics to me is a really fun field in terms of what you learn about is really interesting to me learning a new language is really cool to me i've always liked learning languages And the community at McGill is fun. Classics to me is not the savior of civilization, it's not. Classics is not the best discipline in the world. It's not better than others. And it's just something fun to study. And if you think it's cool, study it. There will be jobs for you once you graduate. What you learn to do in classics is you learn to think, you learn to solve puzzles and you learn to write. And if you think it's cool, do it.
0: This is my conversation with archaeologist and 2021 McGill graduate Christiane-Marie Cantwell. Tune in next episode for my conversation with Neha Rahman, who has just wrapped up a master's program at Cambridge University. Cover art for the podcast was designed by Taya Kendall. Music by Matthew Hawkins. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.